I went into Roots Cafe the other day and I ran into a friend of mine who I happen to know is clean and sober. And he was sitting with his nephew, who I also learned is in sobriety. And I told him about our podcast, Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores. And he just loved the title and said, oh, I want that on a t-shirt. And I said, well... stories about addiction we might oh stories about recovery too mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart sensitive people into liars thieves gluttons and whores liars and thieves and gluttons and whores oh liars thieves gluttons and whores oh my liars thieves gluttons and whores oh my liars thieves gluttons and whores oh my Welcome everyone to Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores. You are on the air with me, your host, Nancy Adair. Here at LTGW, we are dedicated to sharing stories with you from the dark and the light side of addiction and of recovery. One of the first stories that came to my mind when considering doing this podcast was the story of Sister Ellen. A few years ago, I met this wonderful woman who opened her home to me and my son. And when Ellen told me her story, which included gambling away the convent's money, well, I nearly peed myself. Of course, this is funny for all of us, anyone actually, unless of course you are Sister Ellen. So I'm so glad that Ellen has agreed to do this interview with me today. And I'd like to welcome her on to the LTGW podcast. And um, thank you so much, Ellen, for being with us today. It's my privilege. Thank you for inviting me. And why don't we start with what was that darkest moment in your history with addiction and was it only addiction to gambling or did you, like many of us, run the gambit of other addictions as well? Um, I think the darkest moment, I remember sitting in the garden because I, I love gardening and I got so low and so helpless and hopeless. I sat in the garden with the trowel and I just dug, dug a little bit of dirt and I flopped it down, dug a little dirt and flopped it down. And I was just so frail and, and down that I couldn't move and I couldn't do anything else. And I just felt really, really that there was no solution to any of my problems. You know, I was on my own. Um, I'd been suicidal in the, in the past, but I got through that. I wasn't suicidal as far as taking my own life, but I was, I was the fact that I was so, so helpless that, I wanted to die any time, you know, but I knew that I was a strong person, that wouldn't happen, but I, that was very dark. What will I ever do? What will I ever do? And people began to notice I frayed at the edges with several of my addictions. Um, and I have, I have five, six major ones that 
that um, that I have. Um, so I'm addictive personality. I knew I never heard anything about twelve steps or recovery. I, I didn't know particularly about AA, um, except through my nursing, and that was a place for alcoholics and drunks, you know. So I I knew then that it was I don't know. I went to a therapist and and um, self help retreats, renewals, you know, and some of those renewals I would. Um, I would feel light, you know. I feel that that um, I've got the answer. I'm right. I I sort of did the six weeks renewal, and I would come out feeling that I'm never going to go back to any of those things. And I I had the grace, and I had the support. And I, except one of them, um, did did, and I told him I was drinking, I was suicidal, and that went back to our superior. But when I got home, I got faced with that. And that was a very dark time. And that started me on the road to two therapists. Um, I got one that was a Jungian therapist that I couldn't relate to. I sat there silent. <laughs> the whole hour I was just so, and that did not work. And it did not work. Several therapists did not work because I couldn't, I couldn't speak. I couldn't engage in anything. Mm. So, yeah. Um, I can tell you a little bit about the the, um, the, the my my food food um, I, I I sort of my first one would be food you know and I think that's okay, so let's list let's list all six you said you have six addictions that you you've got uh, that are the major ones I think were your words so um, food was probably the earliest the earliest. And then alcohol, alcohol came when I left home. Um, then there was smoking, and that lasted well into the convent days. Um, and then there was the, um, what was after that? Then there was, um, I suppose, that the, you know, shopping was, but I wasn't ever shopping for, in, in good shops, I was always opportunity shops and mm. um, the community landfill shop, you know, I'd be dragging things home to make things with and buying things. So, you know, right from probably about, would be, probably after the alcohol, probably would have been workaholic. And especially when I, I, I entered the convent and became involved in the palliative care movement, and um, hospice care and this an introduction in this country. So I got really workaholic in a lot of my addictions. And I think the last one was, you know, going and bringing shopping, you know, just for something to do, just for, you know. So those are my six. So you didn't mention the gambling. Oh, the gambling was the, gambling was the last one. <laughs> the gambling was the last one. And that was major. That was absolutely major. Um, because, um, yes, you know, I didn't ask to. I didn't walk into into a machine, into a place with a machine. I didn't walk in there and ask how it worked and how, what to do. You know, I didn't. I just remember in the early days, I, I, the one-arm banded machine, you know, I had a couple of goes at that, but just, but no, no no inclination to get back to it at all until this person gave me some money and then we went another time and after that I was away. I was away and 
gamble, you know, high prices, full lines. <laughs> and that and that was really, really, you know, and that went on, that went on, you know, I think that I started living on my own and then every day I was at a machine a couple of times a day. Wow. And that got me into great debt. And and was it your debt? Or were you spending money through the convent? Um, and spending other people's money. Right, well. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was, you know, it was, I was working. Um, we have a budget. We have a house budget and a personal budget within that house budget um, that we have to take returns once a month. And um, those returns were just absolutely lies. They were absolute fraud <laughs> because I worked sometimes 24 hours a day, seven days a week to get the money because I, I was in debt and I wanted to get the money back but I couldn't stop spending it. Um, mm. I would Every time I had a, had a coin or a note, I would be in trying to win, you know. And if I won a couple of thousand dollars, I would be there spending that couple of thousand to win more. Um, and, you know, so, so it was well into the thousands that I had lost through my own money. Um, I'd take someone shopping or they didn't know I did the shopping. They gave me a hundred dollars or a couple of hundred dollars and I'd go and spend it. Then I'd have to get it out, get it back so I could do her shopping and take it home, you know, and, and, um, you know, it was unethical the way I treated some people. You know, um, Unfortunately, I really do know. <laughs> Those are bringing back all kinds of memories for me too, you know, especially just uh, making up the budget that I was given for a job, you know, um, a spending allowance and like I'd put in mileage when I wouldn't ever leave my home or, or the, um, the company, you know, and I'd enter in complete fabrications um yeah, yeah. The total you know totally you know and i was burning the candles at both ends and out and, you know it was it was a dilemma for me you know but i couldn't stop i went mm -hmm. to, I went to a salvation army face-to-face counseling for four years and i was I was in the machine two or three times during the day as soon as I left there with all the, with all the promises I wouldn't gamble that day. And, yeah. Um, you know, walk miles. On Christmas Day, I walked this, this, this um, suburb, um, this township, trying to find a machine open in the afternoon. I had Christmas dinner with a lovely Christmas dinner, and then I went on the rampage trying to find some place open. That's my desperation. You know? Yes, you. yes. I really do know. And I also remember for myself, and I've heard it from many people too, it's having multiple addictions. It's like having all these balls in the air that helps you to deny anyone being really, like you said, getting to that place of desperation. You know, I had food addiction and alcohol addiction and um working and cigarettes although 
really pot, not um, nicotine. And, uh, and I remember back when I was a young woman um, working for this company, I was smoking cigarettes, nicotine cigarettes, and I got a, um, a throat cold. And I thought, if I just smoke through the cold, I'll be able to continue smoking and it won't hurt. And then I thought, and you'll have another addiction. You know, <laughs> like, I think I was probably early in my recovery from alcohol at that point in my early 20s. Um, Two funny things, like when I was smoking, as I was doing, and I must have been very stressed, but I went down to the boiler house to, I had a friend down there who was on our staff and he offered me a cigarette. And so I took one and I was sitting there and the, the, one of the nuns, older nuns came down and she caught us and I you know, turned around and then she left straight away. And then she caught up with me during the day and she said, you were smoking with him, with Barry. And I said, me? No, no. She said, no, not me. Me? She said, I saw you. And I said, saw me, but I didn't have a cigarette in my hand. And she said, you did. And I said, and I pulled out a biro and I said, I had this in my hand. It was a white biro, complete white biro. And I had this in my hand. And she looked bamboozled. She looked totally, yes. totally, I don't know if she believed me or not, but I don't think so. But, but you know, that sort of thing, the lies and, you know, I don't. I I knew I couldn't stop smoking. So when I entered the convent, I had my last cigarette outside the convent place. They declared that was the last one. But I found places that other people who I knew who smoked, and I'd have a smoke. Um, but then, even even long into my years, probably in the convent, I, if I got stressed and I had a stressful job. If I got really and I had to make a decision and do something bad, I had to buy a pack of cigarettes to think my way through it. I had, every time I had something to make up, I had to sit there on the step or on a chair outside in the sun and smoke until I got clear of what I was going to do. And then I'd mm. take that, put that cigarette, put the butt out. But, you know, I... Then I had to smoke all that packet of cigarettes in the next few days. I, could, I couldn't keep it to the next time, which may have been in a few weeks. I smoked it all, and then, and then I would um, go and buy a new packet when I had a problem to solve. That's crazy, you know. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. know it is the craziness of addiction. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about, um, you know, how old were you when you went into becoming a nun? Um, what was your career like as a sister? I, um, I was 24 when I entered the convent. I had, I'm from another country and I landed in this country because I was going back, I had a contract to go back to where I was before, but I thought, well, I'd come over here with a friend. I'm a person who falls into things. I don't really 
plan too much. You know, I don't think, well, that career and this career, that career, all my life. I just fall into it because somebody's doing it or I get offered something or, you know, I just find I'm at the right place at the right time, do it, and then I do it, you know. And um, so that's what I did about coming over here. They said, will I come? And I said, oh, yes, <laughs> that sounds good. I, you know, I'll do that next year. We'll go around on a working holiday. And then I ran out of money to with, you know, because we were on some motor scooters and each of us, you know, big motor scooter to, to do this. And um, I, I then found myself a job with the nuns. And, and after a few weeks, you know, six weeks of I was working there, I, I just, I loved the nuns. <laughs> I loved the, the ones in nursing. You know, I had all my nursing training, so I had that under my belt. I don't know how I passed it, but my, my work, my, my other students helped me to rote learn. I wrote learn everything. And um, so I, um, question. Um, yeah, so, so anyhow, I stopped and learned all about, and I am a good nurse. I really, that's the highlight. I, and there's something that I'm very grateful to God. I'm very grateful to the universe that I had certificates and I was a good nurse. And so, and I was always on the path to goodness, even, even with my food addiction when I was little. You know, and, and there's been a history of sexual abuse and psychological abuse in the family. And I, um, I even then wanted to be good. I went to confession often. To because I wanted to be good, you know, I wanted to have a good life and be a woman of goodness. And then I thought that, so I thought to myself, I could be really good <laughs> in this place. They could teach me how to be good. I could follow there. I'll be, I'll be away from temptations and the attractions of the world, and I'll be able yeah. to know goodness and and live goodness. And the other thing that was very important because of the type of nursing, the type of ministry these nuns had I thought I can do that the rest of my life I can be of service and I could nurse the rest of my life in this institute and um and I, you know and this is I went in for valid reasons people might pick at it because I think but I went in for valid reasons yeah so that you know I think one of the things about addiction for me, and I, again, have heard with so many others that when we make those promises to ourselves, or like you said, to the therapist, I won't gamble today. And then you find yourself at machines twice in the day after um, the actual therapy appointment. It's making those promises to ourselves and others every day that erodes our self-esteem. You know, where you want to be a good person, your intention is to be good. And um, you know you are capable and even talented uh, in service. And then it just, it, the addiction kind of erodes that away, um, like waves taking sand away from the shore. You know, it's just every time you break that promise, it's hard. And the, and the hole gets bigger inside yourself. So mm -hmm. or smoking or alcohol really doesn't keep the fault. Now you go on to some other addiction, you know, the, the, the loneliness or the, 
vacantness of the hole um, needed to be filled with, with the machine, the noise of the machine and winning money, which I needed to do. <laughs> you know, and that, you know, the, so yeah, it, it, and then that erodes the self-esteem and my confidence and, mm -hmm. and my credibility. My credibility is lowered, if, if it exists at all, that's that. So I remember learning when um, I stayed with you that uh, nuns basically never retire. So, and yet you're not working. Would you share with my audience some of the, uh, you did wonderful things all around the world. And uh, I remember stories that you told about, um, what was the island off of Fiji or, you know, like, Tonga, the kingdom of Tonga. Tonga, yeah. Good, good, good. I was there for four years and did, um, did um, ear care, you know, learned how to use a microscope and we had, you know, little, children, little babies only a few days old with draining pus in their ears. And, you know, I felt like an, an elephant, you know, trying to suck these or wax and it's dry. And anyhow, that was, yeah. So that was amazing. And then I came back and did leadership role. <laughs> you know, I was Mother Superior, even with all those addiction. At, you're, you're telling me, Sister Ellen, that while you were addicted, you were Mother Superior? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. And yeah. see, I think that's comical. I, I want people to hear that. And I also know that when you're living it, it's tragic. Yeah, it's tragic and it's really sad. But, you know, there was, you know, there was always, you know, I managed not when I was in Tonga, except the smoking got, you know, because that was, I could do that secretly, but we didn't have the drink. And so I, I managed without it, except when somebody brought a bottle back over, you know. But, um Yes, and I hadn't been introduced to this. So I became a workaholic over there as well, you know, as what beforehand. So, you know, I did put a lot of my energies and time and everything in, do, in working, doing. I was a doing person. And even now it's very hard to be a being person. You know, we don't, we don't, um, we don't retire. We're still at service and I do a lot of voluntary work and visiting and I'm on a, I'm on a few boards, a few committees. Um, but you know, you do, you, I do get now being retired that it's not, you know, I need, I need to be, I need to be doing all the time. And I'm in a situation now that, you know, and I don't drive now because of some medical condition and which means, <laughs> which means that, you know, I'm faced with myself. So there's lots of, uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome, things involved in all that as well, you know. Although I know, I know that when I was with you a couple of years ago with my 23-year-old son at the time, it was hard to keep up with you walking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do a lot of walking. And, yeah. and I just seem to be, you know, I, I try to do what's in front of me, what I'm asked to do, you know. Sometimes I have to I have to examine that and look look at self care, you know, as you get older. What um, twelve step 
involvement really turned things around for you. Let's talk about some of the recovery in your life. Um, yeah, as I say, I didn't know anything about about um, twelve steps. Although I have a, a, a tape a tape that I keep from um, a monk who I listen to often, but Paul, you know, and he talks about the twelve steps, but I didn't hear it. I didn't hear mm-hmm. it when I listened to it all those years back. I wasn't ready, you know. Um, I. And it's step by step. I think the door was opening a little bit before before I actually entered into a 12-step program. And I did a Vipassana meditation that was a 10 days complete grand silence. And I had to hand in my car, my keys and mm-hmm. books and pens and everything. And I was there on my own, you know, meditating most of the days and hours. And I did that and it was it was hard, you know, I couldn't wait to, to finish. But I understood the concept of cravings. I started acknowledging that I had cravings that I can't control. But I think that was the first um, the first, first sort of inkling. Then, for unknown reason, um, the person I was looking after in the community, I was doing community work, um, and I used to look after him three days a week while his wife did what she had to do, you know, and um, take him out and we just take him down to the poke machines and take him down to the TAB and all that sort of stuff. Um, and one of the days his wife sort of read to me an article in the newspaper about, about um, 12 steps for food and she said, and she was a big woman herself and diabetic, but she said to me, Margaret, you would be interested in this. And I think she, I think she hoped I was going to be in because that was three days a week and she fed me. So I think she, she couldn't, I think she saw how much food I, I had or, or something, you know, my picky, picky the food, you know, when I went past the fridge, I'd open to see what she had. And um, she read it to me and I I heard, not that I heard correctly, but I heard the words craving and cognitive therapy, talking about cognitive therapy with, with addictions. And I thought, I must go there, you know, but I didn't have any sense I knew what addictions, really, what where I was going. I didn't know it was about food. I just thought it was about, and it certainly wasn't about cognitive therapy. And I don't know if the word cravings came <laughs> But I went, and the next night, I just couldn't wait to get there, and I sat myself in this room with half a dozen other people that came to this meeting. Well, there was quite a big crowd there, and I heard my story. I heard my story in, in what we were listening to and the two people who were sharing. I heard about recovery, and I thought, I can do that. You know, that was my story. What I what I heard and saw more than that was that there was people in the world that had these these um, insane behaviours and it had ruined their lives and they had got desperation and rock bottom and they had nowhere to turn and I come to the end and that this this program and I didn't I didn't realise there was other people in the world that got as low as I did and unethical as I did 
and had all these, you know, um, dishonesty, the very fiber of their body was dishonest. Yes. And um, so I'm going to the first AA meeting. It took me, it took me three, three goes to get inside the door because I thought somebody would recognize me. <laughs> I couldn't bear that. I went right out to an out, outer suburb to go to my first AA meeting and I heard it again. I heard the self-entitlement and being the centre of the universe and that sort of thing. So, so that was my first and, and I just received a dish, a silver platter with hope, hope and belief on it, you know, that this could program. And I'd have a sponsors, you know, I had the sponsors who helped me and um, I want to do is stay, stay honest. And, and the story that, that carried on for me, I went, and I went on two weeks holiday and came back. And the, one of the darkest or the shock that I got, we got a new secretary in the office who wanted my state and bank statement. So I have a credit card. And another statement is just my little, little bank, you know, and the, the nuns knew that I had that because I had to pay a few things out of that. So they knew I had it, but I didn't know what extent. And so it, it, um, the story goes on that my sponsor said to me, you've got to, Ellen, you've got to speak. You've got to tell me, you know, you've got to talk to me. And I said, well, what do I talk about? <laughs> she said, well, what's on top? And I said, what's on top? I said, you wouldn't want to know. And she said, I would. And I said, I've been asked for my bank statement. And if I had for this little account, nobody's ever asked me for it and had all my winnings and all my losers, all that somebody gave me $3,000 to go on a holiday to one of the daughters looking after their mother's mother and dad that she lived over there, one of the daughters. And um, it had that, and that went to pay off a debt that I had borrowed from a finance company. <laughs> so I paid that off. Never went on to the holiday at that stage. And um, so, so you know, I um, so I said, you know, I've got three choices: either I tell tell them I give it to them, or two, they will never find my passwords. So I don't have to. I say, no, you're not getting it. Or three that I that I pack up my bags and go that I've been found out. Mm. <laughs> you know, so I said to my sponsor about this, and that was that that was an amazing experience because she said, "Well," and my sponsor was a corporate woman, not a, not a Catholic, didn't know anything, but she knew about organisation. She knew about your organisation. You've got rules and responsibility to go with it. So she knew that you know. That we had a common so anyhow you know she made me well she didn't make me she suggested that, <laughs> that i write down all that i've spent in the last 12 months or the last year and this was this was in a february so for all last the first previous year to write down how much i spent how much i lost <laughs> That sort of thing. So that was hours of work to do all that. And I then had to tally it all up. And it came to lots of money, you know. 
$29,000 or something that I'd gone through. Um, I didn't I didn't actually owe any persons any money. I paid back that, you know. Since and no long sharks. No, 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 no long sharks at that stage. So anyhow, I had to send it down to the, the leadership team. Well, though, you know, to and I sent a letter down saying you're going to be shocked about this letter, this other letter that's coming. And so they did. I did get interviewed by them, had a conversation, and I they said, well, you know, they had been in contact with other people, you know, and there is a there is a 12 months residential course uh, treatment for the naughty nuns and naughty priests. And that, you know, I would, I had to apply and um, I had to apply and um, see if I was suitable, appropriate for this time away, you know, my world just came to an end, you know. And um, so, so I went, so anyhow, I had been in this 12-step recovery, I think two meetings, <laughs> two meetings. And I believed in it so much, you know, I said, I want to do, you know, I, I'm, I've met, I've, I've joined this group of people here, you know, and I have a sponsor for this, for this amount of time every time a week and she knows about this and, um, and I want to, I want to do this. If this doesn't work, then I will do that. And they tried to persuade me and wouldn't think. I said, give me three months or six months and I'll promise I'll do that. But that's six months, you know. And what, the reason I said, I've been to so many therapists, I've been to so many renewals and um, and, and whatever, rehabilit re rehab, you know, with the, with this, the Salvation Army thing I've been, you know. And I said, I can stay when I went to Tonga. I can stay when I'm right out of life into a different life. I can pretty well stay okay, you know. But I said, I, I will come back home and I will do exactly, I'll go back to what I was before. I said, I've proved that to myself, you know. And this, this, this is going to, to get me in recovery, get me through all these addictions um, on the, my, my daily life. And I've got somebody to talk to, meetings to go to, I've got a food plan, I can, you know, and other things gets that. And um, so I said, please let me, you know, and they did, they did. So that's really the end of my story. <laughs> well, I love that. I love that, Sister Ellen, that in two meetings, you had hope that you'd never had before through multiple rehabs and retreats and therapists just two meetings and talking to a sponsor on a regular basis in the food addiction program. And you had hope in a way that you never had before. And not only hope, but hope that you could do this and manage your recovery in your daily life. Not when you're just um, in a safe place where, whether it's in Tonga Island or, um, you know, or a rehab or, you know, where there are closed doors or locked doors. It's, it's when there's an open door and it's your day-to-day -day life. 
And so one sponsor, even in six different addictions that you were juggling, one sponsor started to show you the way. And the miraculous occurrence there that I got the right sponsor who knew and was touchable to me, you know. Um, I could have got anyone around the world to be sponsoring me, you know, and anybody was sort of thing. And she was the right person who had what I wanted. And you know That's great. And that I didn't I didn't um, you know, I I it took me a couple of years to really get because I, I had toxicity, that was my main story with the food and the thing was just this time. I mean that left me after a few weeks. Um, but you know, my, my head, my head was so heavy on my shoulder with all the obsession, with all the manipulation, with all the living, living my split off character. I was living Mr. Jackman, Mr. Hyde. I had all these, I could produce myself and sit at the prime minister's table, or I could do something else and I can be part of a group, or I could be, you know, sort of in front of a machine with a lot of other addicts, you know, and the, the adaptability of my head. And, and so to navigate myself around, so I made mistakes, you know, I got myself in the situation where they, I, because I people please, you know, they, they, and to, to actually say to somebody, I'm bringing my food, I can't eat the food that you eat. <laughs> I'm bringing my own or what are you having for dinner so I can get my, my abstinent meal. You know, I, I couldn't bring myself to do that. That was really so. So a lot of those things, I, you know, I had to go, go back to beginning of the program, you know, five or six times with little mistake. But I never deliberately picked up flour and sugar for all those years. And that's for 14 years ago, really. I was just going to ask you the amount of time. So 14 years you've been in recovery around food addiction. Yeah. That's and, lovely. Yeah. And... Um, you know, and alcohol, I, you know, it took me a while to, to, to keep saying, why does that person leave in half a glass of alcohol? <laughs> no, I could drink that or, you know, traveling on airplanes, I give you a little free bottle, you know, I wanted desperately to take that bottle. Even if I didn't drink it, I still wanted to take it. <laughs> I can't say that I stopped gambling. I, I found that, you know, I stopped gambling in my country, but if I went to another country, that you know, nobody knew me. And, you know, so that's another long story, but I just, but I haven't gambled for about three years. I, and I, and I really, um, and I, I, I was violent to machines. The last, you know, just, you know, I could tell you some stories, but, you know, I just got violent with the machine to to make all the money out of it, you know, and, and then I'd earn that then I'd earn some dirty money because I really didn't know what to do with this money I had, you know. But I lost money too on occasions. But that was when I travelled that I you know. And um, so yeah, I and I the reason how why I've been able to to not, and I think I finished with the gambling. You know, I, I think I could walk and gamble. And I, and I was able to, to me, when I was violent on the machine and reflecting on that, the violence scared me. 
and I could see mm -hmm. how people, I, I'm not a binger with my food, but I can really, really now understand how people have only got one thought, and that is to find food. Yeah. One thought was to find a machine that I'd go to, you know, and this last time, I, the machine that I, I hadn't finished with the machine, I started the day before and I had to go and I hadn't finished with the, the binge of gambling. And I said, would you, would you hold this machine? Because I wasn't a member. Would you hold the machine because I need to go over to, <laughs> to the mall to get some more money out of my credit card? And they said, yes, they would for a half an hour. And I went over and that machine was out of order. So I found another machine. And I thought, this is insane. And I had made up, the people I was with, I had made up a story that I was going to meet a friend in this mall. We were going to have lunch together. That was all a lie. I wasn't meeting anybody. I went over there for the exact purpose. Because so it's still that addictive behavior. Right. So you were abstinent with your food and with alcohol and you were still lying and um, deceitful and not in your personal integrity over the gambling. That's true. I, you know, I just reflecting on all that. To me, it was like a, a, an affair, one stand affair. Mm -hmm. So I married with the church or with my vows as a nun and I do take that seriously, but never, you know, and I was face to face. That was, you know, it was just like a marriage and you had those one night stands. And I thought, yeah, that was, that was so, so critical, that experience that I've just had an affair. Yeah. And that cheating on yourself, right? You know, that juxtaposition of mother superior and the naughty nun. You know, like it is that, uh, that appeal of the affair too, you know, because it's, clandestine and yes yes so another superior i haven't picked up that, that habit then right so, so are there anything else we need to wind down is there anything else that you want our listeners to understand um about your journey sister ellen um just one thing which i thought was was really, to me, I picked it up along the way. I think I entered this world when I was born. I think I looked around and I thought, I didn't like what I saw. <laughs> no family, Down <laughs> syndrome sister. I didn't like it. And my mother was elderly and I didn't think I belonged. But I, and I set out to prove that I didn't belong. And, and I think I bonded with food. I didn't bond yeah. with parents and and, and relationships through school and, you know, and so, so, you know, to me, I'm trying to look at, well, now that I'm abstinent, that I'm looking at self-care, self-compassion, self sort of, and I'm not there yet, you know, I'm not there yet, but this the fact that I, I need to bond, I need to bond with, with myself, my inner self, I need to bond with, with with other human beings to be able to, you know, be vulnerable, bond, and I don't need substances and processes to, it doesn't work now for me, you know. And I think that's important for me to, for somebody to get a connection. 
You know, I do. I do too. And I think when you um, compared it to an affair, it's like an unrequited love affair, you know, where you turn to the substance for that need, but it's never met by the substance. You know, it's just an illusion that it'll be met. So yes, like you said, that hole in your soul gets bigger and bigger. And it brings me back to your first story about the trowel in the dirt, you know, and just feeling so helpless and hopeless in the midst of a garden, you know, and um, thank you so much for sharing your story with us, Sister Ellen. I really appreciate it. And I want to let the listeners know that if you want to learn more about addiction, you can certainly reach out to me, Nancy Adair, at nancyadair.com. It's very easy. My name is spelled with an I, N-A-N-C-I-A-D-A-I-R.com. And we would love to hear from you. And there are resources on that website for an addict. I'm a firm believer that in recovery, we can live a life second to none. So... Thank you so much. Thank you. Do you suppose we'll hear stories about addiction? We might. Oh. Stories about recovery, too? Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Are you a fan of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores podcast? Do you want to support the show and show off your love for LTGW? Look no further than You Can Do Merch Store, brought to you by host and creator, Nancy Adair. 